Well, I have to confess to you that a couple of weeks ago, I met with the stage manager of the theater and asked if they would consider ways to increase lighting in the theater. (laughs) And they did. And uh, I've been trying to figure out what this feels like. And I have to say, I think it feels a little bit like a nighttime construction zone on the highway. You know, (laughs) they have those big lights shining in the darkness. And um, I must be the one who wrecked. Um, Psalm 116 this morning, you can find it on page 8 of your bulletin. You'll see it there. And this is the, the fourth in a row of these Egyptian Hallel Psalms as they've come to be known in the scripture. And as we read this one, you will quickly notice that it's an individual psalm. It's, it's written by an individual for an individual. Because the self-references, I and me and my, come again and again and again. Over 30 times in this psalm is it self-referential. And that may seem kind of odd because the, the Hallel Psalms were psalms known together to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel as a people from Egypt. They were used at the Passover. But that deliverance continues even today because it reaches right down to the individual. It reaches right down to you, and so it's fitting. It reaches right down to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So Psalm 116, beginning in verse 1. I love the Lord. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us once again to understand your word, to see the good news of the righteousness of Christ here in Scripture. Help us to see it and to believe, to grow in your grace and to walk away from this theater changed, made new yet again, increasing in faith to trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. One of what I think is probably the indisputably greatest car commercials ever made 
came out, I'm sure it had to be during the Super Bowl, just a few years ago. And it was Volkswagen selling their, their new car, whatever the model was. So the commercial begins in a, the hallway of a home. And the music is from Star Wars. It's the Evil Empire theme. And the camera focuses on the hallway where a young child, a young boy, I expect probably five or six years old, is, is striding down the hallway in his brand new Darth Vader costume. And he is evidently intent on testing out the powers of the force, the, the mental control, the mind control that surely must come along with this new costume. And so he strides on into the family living room where mom and dad have a stationary bike. And he stands in front of that bike and he puts his hands up and concentrates with all his might. And nothing happens. And so he turns his attention to the family dog on the floor of the living room. And he he concentrates on the dog to see if he can make it move. And the dog just lazily stares up at him as if he's a nuisance. And he goes to his little sister's bedroom, apparently, and... She has a baby doll sitting on her bed. And so he focuses his attention on that baby doll to see if he can do something. And the baby doll does nothing. And so he sits down at the kitchen table where mom has placed a peanut butter sandwich in front of him for lunch. And and he tries the peanut butter sandwich. Nothing happens. He's helpless. His costume has failed him. There's nothing that it will do for him. And then he hears dad come home. Dad comes driving up in the driveway in his, of course, new Volkswagen. He parks the car and his son goes dashing out to the driveway because there's an opportunity not to greet his father, whom he passes by as he runs to the car, but the car. He stands in front of the car, Darth Vader helmet and black robe on him, and he concentrates on that car with all of his force and nothing happens. So he repositions himself, he changes his feet, and he concentrates on that car and the lights come on. He's startled. And so he, he doubles up and he concentrates on the car again. And the engine roars to life. He can't believe what he's seeing here. Nothing would respond to his call. Except for a loving father with an auto start key fob in his hand. This psalmist is likewise helpless, whatever his circumstance is that he's trying to to overcome. And he's overwhelmed by, by life's troubles, life's circumstances. And nothing, nothing at all will respond to his call except for a loving father who holds the world in his hand. Now, you may remember those idols from last week from Psalm 115 there in that psalm, we, we saw how the, the psalmist recalled and, and, and even mocked the idols of this world, the images of silver and gold, those lifeless idols that could not speak or hear or see or move. And I challenged you then to think and, and consider what are your own idols that shape your own lives. And, and if you think about what those are, you know, you can... You can call on the names of your idols all day long. You can call on the names of your idols all your life long, and the only response you'll ever get from them is the response that you have crafted according to your own imagination. This writer knows better 
Verse 1, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. Because God heard and answered in the past, this psalmist is confident that God will also hear and answer in the present and the future as well. You know, people change, and places change, and styles change, even institutions change over the course of time, but God does not. God does not change. What He did in the past, He will do again. And so, you, if you are in Christ, must learn to call on Him in the distress of trouble. That's where the psalmist begins, in the the distress of of trouble, verses 3 to 7. We're not really sure who exactly wrote this psalm. David, some suggest, wrote the psalm because there are similar words in Psalm 18, which we studied earlier this summer. Verse 3 is a verse that you really find almost verbatim in Psalm 18, which David wrote, and, and he was in trouble there. But this psalm is anonymous. We're not told who wrote it. Some would suggest that it's delivered from, uh, it's a person who's delivered from a life-threatening illness, some illness that, that threatened to take their very life, and they've been delivered from it. But we don't know that exactly. What we do know is that verse 3 <clears throat> is <clears throat> similar to what another writer wrote in the Old Testament, Jonah, the prophet Jonah. You might recall the, the story of Jonah in the belly of the fish. He had run away, had fled from God's call to preach the gospel in Nineveh, and God pursued him and, and actually saved Jonah. And Jonah, in the belly of the fish, prayed to the Lord. He, he tells us there in the middle of Jonah, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And Jonah goes through explaining how he's calling from the depths of Sheol and the deeps of the water surrounded him. The weeds even wrapped around his head and the anguish of death was in front of him. And with all those things, Jonah was able to say, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in the Gospels, Jesus explains to some religious people about Jonah's predicament. The Pharisees, who are confronting Jesus, as they often did at this occasion, uh, were looking for a sign. They wanted Jesus to perform a sign to prove who he was claiming to be, the Son of God. And his response to them was, you have the sign of Jonah. The sign of the one who was dead in the belly of the fish for three days, as good as dead, in the, in the snares of death for three days. And God raised Jonah to save Nineveh. And now one greater than Jonah has come. And for three days he will be in the snares of death. But God will raise him to save all of God's people from the distress of their trouble. Now that's the big picture. That's the big picture of what's happening in this psalm. But, but the psalmist has real problems. The psalmist is an individual, right? This is an individual psalm, and this is a real person with real problems, real troubles. What troubles? We don't know exactly. It might be that his grown son moved away to college and now is showing all the signs of completely neglecting all of his reasonable responsibilities, and he's losing sleep as a dad, 
concerned for his son. It might be that uh, a young woman has a, a baby daughter, a baby son, a child whose medical condition is, is seemingly unapproachable by any medical professional to solve. It might be that a young man with friends at school trying to persuade him to reject his parents and turn away from everything that he knows that he's called to from God that's true and right is facing that trouble. Or, or maybe a young woman whose sense of purpose in life is fading away with failed relationships and a dead-end job. Sometimes life can feel overwhelming. Sometimes whatever your circumstances are, it can feel like the snares of death have wrapped themselves around you, like the, the anguish of the grave is confronting you in the face. And so how does this psalmist call on God? Well, he calls on his name. Verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Now, what is the Lord's name? We talked about this, I think, earlier in the summer. The Lord's name is Yahweh. This is the name that Moses received at the burning bush. Remember when Moses met the burning bush and was talking to him and God through the bush and Moses asked, who will I say to Pharaoh sent me? And and God through the bush explains, tell him that I am sent you, Yahweh. Tell him that the one who is, the existing, the being one sent you, the self-existent high and holy one above all of creation. That's the one who sent you, and that is my name. In other words, the psalmist wants for you to know that the attributes of God can match up to any trouble that you face. If you have failed yet again, verse 5, gracious is the Lord. If you doubt God's commitment to you, verse 5, righteous is the Lord. In other words, He will do what's right. He's always faithful to his own promises and he will never abandon them. He will always do what's right. He is righteous. Or if you doubt God's, uh, if if, if your sin seems overwhelming to you, perhaps even, it seems too much for you ever to overcome, well, merciful is the Lord. Whatever, Whatever your trouble, the attributes of God will match up to your trouble. So call on the name of the Lord in your distress and in your trouble. One of you sent to me a a, a quote this past week that I think you had no idea how perfectly it would fit right here. It's exactly what this psalmist is after. John Calvin, great theologian from hundreds of years ago, said it this way. He said, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely with good reason... The Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling upon His name. The only stronghold of safety in the distress of trouble is to call upon His name. Why? Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Now the simple is not the uneducated So let's don't think of it in in our terms as we might be inclined to do. The the psalmist is not talking about someone who's uneducated. He's not even talking about someone who's naive. He's referring to 
those who are like little children and therefore are unable to preserve themselves. And they know it. The psalmist preserves those ones, the simple ones. And you will recognize that God has given you rest. In verse 7, return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The simple one, the one who knows that he or she can't preserve themselves, is the one that God will preserve and 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 care for and deal bountifully with and actually give to them rest the bounty of God's dealing with them is in the deliverance that he provides for them in the gospel and so even in the relief that that brings you call on the name of the Lord in the relief of his deliverance verses 8 and 9 you have Delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's a a gesture of hope on the part of the psalmist who was just wrapped up in the the anguish of the grave. And now he's proclaiming, "I'll, I'll walk in the land of the living because God has delivered me. And what will you do in the relief of that deliverance? couple of things I think the psalmist suggests to us. For one, you'll be candid about your condition. You'll be candid about your condition. Verses 10 and 11 are a little bit confusing if you look at them. There the psalmist expresses some things that he had been saying and therefore obviously thinking in his struggles. And if you have in your laps an ESV, an English Standard Version Bible, you might be looking at it and think, well, that's not exactly the translation that shows up in the bulletin in verse 10. I believe, therefore, I spoke. Some translations, including the ESV, translate this as, I believed even when I spoke. And the Hebrew participle there could go either way. And so it, it does in, in various translations. That's that's fine. You know, in your footnotes, you might see, therefore. Either one could work, but they give you slightly different meanings. So if, if you say, I believed even when I spoke these things, then it is as if my words that I said when I was in distress might have been misunderstood by you. So you might have heard me say these things when I was in distress, but don't misunderstand me. Even then I did believe. And in that case, it's, it's sort of more of a clarifying excuse than it is a forcefully helpful redemptive statement. So it seems to me more appropriate to say, therefore, I believed, therefore I spoke. And in part that's because the Apostle Paul does the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, you'll find this very verse quoted by Paul in a different sort of context. And there in that verse, Paul explains, he says, As it was written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believed, and so we also speak. Paul is saying there that my belief in the gospel is the grounds for my speaking. Because I believed, therefore I spoke These words. And so I think it is with the psalmist. Because he believes, because he has found the ease of rest in the bountiful justification of God, 
he can now be completely honest with God. He can say, because I believed this gospel, I said, and I wasn't hesitant about it, I am greatly afflicted. Lord, I have problems, and I don't like them, and I don't understand them. I can be perfectly candid with God. In fact, I can, I can say, Lord, because I believe this gospel that you have given to me, I will tell you, all men are liars. Now, I don't think that's a self-righteous statement for him to say, look, I'm, I'm the only one who tells the truth, Lord. Don't you know that? Everybody else, they're just liars. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, there is no one on the face of this earth who has any help to offer me. All they have to say to me are lies, whether they mean to or not. They're, they're liars relative to you, Lord. Nobody else will help me. Now, these two, these two comments, I really think they're not cynical comments, but rather candid insights. Because sometimes such candid cries can really be proof of genuine gospel faith. I'll never forget, 25 years ago, it was half my life ago, I had something of a crisis of faith. I can't remember exactly the details of why, but I really, I really had great doubts about whether I was a Christian. I think I was wrestling through some theological matters and, and trying to sort through things and where I fit in the whole picture of the gospel. And I really began to have doubts. I began to wonder, what, why does my life look like it does? Why is, why is this happening and that happening? And, and maybe I'm really not a Christian. And it really was disturbing to me. It caused me to lose sleep. And my friend Chris Yates, who some of you know from years ago, was the RUF campus minister at Texas A&M. I was working with him at the time. As we talked about this, he, he said to me something that was really helpful and continues to be today. He said, look, you know, I kind of think that if you don't belong to God, then you would not be crying out this way. You wouldn't be so candid about these things. You, you wouldn't be so concerned about these things. Frankly, if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in your life, you wouldn't really care about these things. Therefore, he said, almost prophetically, I believe you belong to Jesus. And I think he was right, but I will tell you, still at this point in my life, sometimes I have doubts. Not that I belong to Jesus. I think I'm there. But... I have doubts, I have concerns, I have troubles, and and sometimes I feel a great need to be candid with the Lord. In the relief of the deliverance that he gives, you'll call on his name with candor. But you'll also do something else. You'll respond to God's initiating invitation. You'll respond to his initiating invitation. Look at verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? In other words, how can I respond to God in the relief of the deliverance that he's given to me? Well, here's how I'll do it. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Now, this verse 13 is, I'm certain, one of the reasons why this psalm came to be used at Passover as one of the Egyptian Hallel psalms. It fits right here as a foreshadowing of the communion table. I will lift up the cup of salvation. The, the cup of salvation is, is the Passover meal. This is exactly what they were doing at the Passover meal, lifting up the cup of salvation. And it is a foreshadowing of what we do when we come to the, the communion table. 
And at that table and at the Passover meal, God is inviting his people to come and sit down, as it were, with him to renew the vows signified by their baptism. That's what we do when we come to the communion table. We, we come called by God to come to that table, to sit with him at his table in order to renew the vows that were signified by our baptism, both our vows and God's vows for us because he has called you to respond to him. He's called you to lift up the cup of salvation as it were, and even to celebrate it. You know that a call, a sense of a call in Scripture is a reciprocal reality. That is, it works both ways. We call on God because God has called on us. As we heard earlier from, from Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because... Paul said, I received grace and apostleship to call people to the obedience of faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Christ. You're called to believe. And you're called to belong. Now, when we have a baptism like we did this morning, it is no small occasion. I mean, it, it is a fun and and joyful, and sweet, and sometimes funny, and lighthearted event. And it should be all of those things. But it is no small occasion. Customarily, it's parents taking vows on behalf of their child who's unable to take those vows to respond to God's initiating invitation. Now, it's, it's a great picture, I'm certain, in the way in which we do it with children, with infants even, because they're completely incapable of responding. As are we at any stage of our lives, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, God has initiating, initiated this invitation. Your maker has called you. And so no matter what lies the world whispers in your ear, no matter what lies your own heart whispers in your ear, God has called you to respond to him in the relief of deliverance. And when you recognize what it cost God to accomplish that, then you'll call on him also in the gratitude of worship. Look at verse 15 with me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maid servant. You have loosed my bonds. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. How can that be? Does that not seem to you a little bit out of place? How How can death be precious to God? Surely it can't be precious to God. Because God hates death. Death is the enemy. God does not cherish death. So what can he possibly mean, the psalmist, by saying that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? I think, I think what he necessarily must mean here is that the life of a saint is so valuable to God that its loss is expensive. Its loss is costly. Its loss is 
precious to God. He doesn't let it happen without paying close attention to it. And if that's the case, then how much more the death of his own son? So think about this psalm in the context of redemptive history. Again, picture this as uh, an Egyptian Hallel song sung at the Passover meal. This would have been the fourth of these psalms, and so it would have been sung later in the meal towards the end during the lifting of cups, as the psalm suggests. And Jesus and his disciples would have been singing, reciting this psalm together at the Last Supper as they raised the cup of salvation. And as he did this, he knew, the disciples probably still were kind of clueless about this, but he knew that he was about to face his own death. Doesn't that give a little more significance to verse 15? He knew he was about to face his own death, but but notice how the, the psalm foreshadows what was going to happen. Verse 16, O Lord... Think of these as the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Now, if that may not bring to mind for you where the New Testament might refer to this, but in Luke chapter 1, when the angel of the Lord came to Mary and gave her the news, by a miraculous work of God and His Holy Spirit, you are to be with child And Mary received that news, and she said something back to that angel. Do you know what she said? She said, I am the servant, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And now these words of this psalm are on the lips of Jesus. I am the son of your maidservant, and you have loosed my bonds. You have freed me from my chains. Three days later, God would loose him from the bonds of the guilt of sin that belongs to you and me that he carried to the grave. The son of the maidservant having gone to the snares of death in our place. And and how will the psalmist then respond? Verse 17 and following. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. He's going to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a a picture of gratitude, with gratitude in worship, in the context of, of the courts of the house of God, in the midst of Jerusalem, that is, in the midst of the people of God gathered together, He's going to call on the name of the Lord. Now, I know that it can be hard to keep a a right perspective on Sundays, can't it? There are lots of distractions in our world, lots and lots of distractions. There really are. I know. Listen, listen, believe me, I know. So many distractions that, that take our minds and our hearts away from where they really ought to be. I mean, in our culture, Sunday... The Lord's Day, as Scripture refers to it, can very much feel like just an extension of Saturday. Just a little bit more me time. A little bit more time for me to decompress and do what I want to do. And and me, myself, and I, in so many ways, hey, if you have the me, myself, and I, take it to this psalm because it's got them too. And see where this psalm takes you instead. 
the Lord's Day is to be a day of rest and refreshment. It is to be that. But if you recognize the value, the preciousness, as it were, of what God has done, then could it be that you will grow more and more and more in joy and even anticipation for the gathered worship of the saints of God, of which you are one, of which you are called to belong to Christ, as Paul said to the Romans. Could it be that, that, that you might grow in joy and anticipation for the worship of the people of God? Could it be? Perhaps. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, his first letter, he opened his letter this way. He said, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul is trying to to reach into this ancient city of Corinth to these few Christians who were there and show them the broad scope of what happens when they gather together for worship. You're not just gathering with each other. You are called to be saints together with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord. That's a remarkable thing. If you think about it, as we gather on on any given Sunday morning in this theater, in this city, in this state, in this country, in this hemisphere, around the world, God's people are gathering as the saints called to call together upon the name of the Lord. In worship, we gather with each other, but we also gather with all those in every place who call on his name. Why? Why do we do that? out of gratitude for the great, great, great love that God has shown to us. He cannot love you more, and He will not love you less. There are many idols, many, many idols in this world and in your own lives upon which you might call, but none of them will respond. None of them will. None of them will respond to you. So call on the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we do pray that you would help us to call upon your name. Help us to recognize the truth to which this psalmist calls us and to believe that you, as our Heavenly Father, have called us to belong to you. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe you and to walk in faith, to grow in wisdom, to grow in joy and to grow even in anticipation of what it is to gather together with all who are called to be saints, to call upon your name. Father, we pray that you do these things for us, for your own glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.